from the Grassroots Midwest Sound Studios in beautiful Lansing, Michigan, welcome to another edition of Ticket Splitters, the Grassroots Midwest podcast. I'm very excited to have as my guest this week, Craig Mauger from the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Craig. I am so thankful to be here. This is a great, great studio you've got here. I saw the homemade bar. I'm not homemade bar, but the professionally made bar you have in the office. Right. We had a retired carpenter, um, so we had a professional do it for us at a really good price, by which I mean free. It was so shiny, I could see my reflection in the... <laughs> Absolutely. <awesome. laughs> we take whiskey very seriously at Grassroots Midwest, so we figured that uh, having a nice bar was uh, essential. So you're in a new space, relatively new. Um, you know, you I got to know you when you were a journalist at uh, MERS, um, one of the, uh, the capital newspapers, uh, the dailies downtown, um, and you sort of transitioned from that to a very specific kind of advocacy journalism around campaign finance. How's that been? <laughs> it's been good. I've been doing it for three years now. When I was at MERS, I covered the state house. So I was almost every day the state house was there. I was there on the house floor writing about what was happening. And I, I became really interested while at MERS in this issue of money and politics, what was driving decisions that uh, were being made. Uh, on the House floor, and uh, I think it's a story that doesn't get told enough, and it's becoming a very important story when it comes to telling how our government functions, because there's more money in politics, there's more influence, and there's there's truly less watchdogs uh, tracking all of this. I think that's right, and it's been um, yeah, part of the reason that um, I, I think that this doesn't get reported on as much is it's not easy reporting to do. Um, both because some people just have a, a sort of visceral feel, uh, fear of numbers. Yeah. Uh, but also it's, you know, in a lot of instances, there is an element of hide the ball going on. For um, sure. And so you really have to do some digging. One of my employees was joking earlier today that this interview was going to be like the diner scene in Heat um, <laughs> between De Niro and Pacino where you're chasing us and we're trying to get away. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I think that that's, that's one of the things that makes what you do especially difficult is, you know, in some instances, obviously, there are legal requirements around disclosure. But in a lot of instances, people are actively trying to hide what they're doing. And it's your job to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, that's that's totally right. I think there, there's kind of two elements to journal where journalism is at right now. You have this this very easy to store. Uh, the very easy story to tell is what was the vote and mm-hmm. what is what are the implications of the vote? Yeah. And there's the second storyline is why did that vote happen? Mm hmm. Or why did the vote not happen? And who yeah. are the groups working behind the scenes to influence that vote? I mean, in Michigan, obviously, there's a very active lobby corps, but I don't think there is really any coverage uh, on a day-to-day basis of what is happening in the lobby corps, who are these people that are trying to influence decisions that affect everyone that live in Michigan. And I, I'm just passionate about uh putting in this effort that, uh, you know, a lot of this takes a long time to put together of trying to track some of this. And it is very difficult to track. People don't want some of this told. Uh, They don't want this information out there. And, you know, people, when I worked at MERS, who would return my phone call within a couple hours, now I have to actively work for a week to try to find. So it it is different. And I I can't blame them for that because they're doing what is in their business's best interest and what they see is in the best interest of of Michigan in many cases. And, And but my belief is that this needs to be out there. And it's part of the transparency of showing people how their government's working. Sure, sure. And frankly, um, you know, I think it's one of the things that we really harp on on the podcast here, and I just do personally, is 
political involvement right now is really in a bad place, um, both in terms of there's a huge swath of people that aren't particularly involved, whether that's on a partisan level or mm -hmm. with issues or anything else. Um, but there's also s some of the political involvement is just venomous and not really yeah. rooted in reality. And so it's I think it's really important that there is, you know, whether it's, you know, the sort of advocacy journalism um, that you're doing, trying to sort of, you know, uncover some of this stuff and bring it to light or just, you know, investigative reporting in general. Yeah, I think returning some facts about how government actually works to discussions around government and politics um, is is really essential for getting people to reengage with the process in a productive way. Yeah, and I think that I, I couldn't agree with you more, of course. And it's, you know, it's awesome to hear you say that. I think people believe that in their heart. Um, we, and there's a difference between advocacy journalism when you're, advocacy, you're advocating around a topic and, and journalism that is partisan advocacy. You I know, agree, absolutely. And I think there's a, there's, a strong, there's a strong difference there. You know, we will call out a Democratic group just as quickly as we will call out a Republican group. And I think that is kind of the trust that we try to build with the public is that we are not approaching this from a partisan basis. We are approaching this from a basis of we believe the public has a right to know. And those are sure. that's one of the three things that I talk about most often in this is that, you know, I, I believe personally that the public should have a right to know as much information about the government and the influence as they can, because this whole thing at the end of the day is about representing about doing the public's will yeah. we have this institution to do the public's will we don't have this institution to do the will of the lobbyist complex that now exists in lansing mm -hmm. this does not exist to uh, empower them it doesn't exist so that um you know individuals can uh you know uh m you know uh see their will done on every issue that goes through the legislature it exists to do the public's will this is a public institution and information about it should be public um, I also believe that transparency is about government accountability. If you have a public office holder that's saying one thing and then doing another thing in private, uh, you know, it's on people like me and it's on our laws to try to make that information available. And it's about democracy. Uh, people need objective information about what's happening in politics in order to make decisions. I mean, there's a lot of fake information out there. I mean, I don't yes. love the term fake news, but there's a lot of information out there that is not 100% um, accurate. And, and, and we need local journalists, we need state journalists digging in to provide uh, you know, a baseline of objective information from which everyone can make, make their views known, I guess. Sure, the, um, the line that I always use uh, with folks that, um, you know, ask me about politics and government that seem really dispirited about where our politics is at, whether those are folks from the left or the right, is the way the system is supposed to work is that you're the boss um, and yeah. these elected officials work for you. And just like any other work setting, the employees work best when they have clear direction from the boss. Yeah, well, good. step one of that is you need to know what the employees are doing. Yeah. Um, you know, you need to have real objective information about what your employees are up to if you expect to give them clear direction about what you want. Yeah, that's that's such a uh, an awesome way to look at this. I I just wrote something about this recently in a letter that I put out where I was sitting in the house gallery last week on a mm -hmm. Friday. Sometimes I go there to do work when I need quiet time. Yeah. This fifth grade <laughs> class walks in. Uh, I, I'm guessing they're elementary school. I, I guess fifth grade. And the tour guide asked them, "Who do these people on the house floor work for?" 
Yeah. And these students, you know, they, they had no idea. You know, they said the president. They, uh-huh. said, they said the senators, which I'm sure the representatives would love that. that Absolutely. That's great. But, I mean, they do. They work for the public. And that was the tour guide's answer. They work for you. Right. And we can't. We forget that. Yeah. I think a lot of times people forget that. Absolutely. The, uh, and I think that that's something, uh, getting that sort of perspective back into the debates around government and public policy, I think is really important for improving the state of our politics mm-hmm. and, and maybe taking some of the venom out of it. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, the, the analogy is not 100% perfect, but if you think about this as a sort of employer-employee relationship, I think it helps sort of clarify why those folks are there. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so what do you feel like is the biggest, or maybe maybe you have a couple answers to this, what the biggest issues are right now in campaign finance in Michigan? Um, I, think there, I think there's a slew of issues when it comes to the transparency. When you talk about issues, I'm guessing you're asking, like, what are the most important things right now? Or? Yeah, in terms of, you know, you obviously do a lot of watchdog work yeah. around campaign finance. And, you know, you alluded to it earlier Um that, uh, you know, sometimes sometimes folks don't want you to know the stuff yeah, that you're trying to find sure. out. And in some ways, I think that um, in many ways, the laws are structured to keep that uh, information yeah. from the public. What, what do you feel like are the biggest sort of pain points um, that have an impact um, on our democracy in Michigan yeah. uh, right now? I think I think there are two trends first that I would say, and I and some of this will be obvious to people that listen to this podcast. I'm sure. Number one is that there's a lot more money coming into politics. Yeah. Um, I mean, you see that we we've just put out a whole bunch of reports about the various elections, the mm-hmm. state house elections, state senate elections, races for governor. All of them saw more money this election cycle than they had previously. Mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised by this. I thought, especially with the state house, I thought there's no way the 2018 state house races would beat the 2016 state house races because you have all these other races on the ballot. But it's still they still did. They yeah. still they still attracted more money. So that's that's kind of one. The second thing is, that, and we've talked about this previously, that there's more money. The money coming into elections is coming in in different ways. Mm-hmm. It used to be driven by the candidates. Yeah. Now it's being driven by outside groups, uh, independent groups often acting outside of the candidates' campaigns. So those are kind of the two big trends that we're seeing in Michigan and nationally. When you talk about pain points, of course, the dark money issue is, is I think, the big issue that's debated right mm-hmm. now um, across the country. Sure. Um, how much of this money that's coming into the these campaigns should be allowed to come from anonymous donors? Should we have disclosure rules that bring light to these donors. My personal opinion is that we should, sure. that we need to know a, a, as much about this spending that is directly trying to influence voters a, as we can. So, I mean, that's a big pain point. Uh, a couple other things in Michigan specifically, you know, we are ranked 50th out of 50 states for transparency. Uh, you know, that gets thrown around, but it is true. Sure. And the two big reasons for that are we are one of two states that don't require lawmakers to file personal financial disclosures. Mm-hmm. We're one of two states that, that don't don't subject the governor's office and the legislature to the Freedom of Information Act. Sure, sure. And uh, certainly the FOIA question has been talked about a fair amount just at the beginning of this legislature uh, in terms of passing a piece of legislation, but what's going to be exempted from FOIA and what's not, um, which I think is a legitimate debate to have. I mean, there are some legitimate concerns there in terms of protecting information um, from constituents. Um, You know, having worked in a legislative office myself, um, Mm. 
you know, in the past, you do frequently get calls from people um, that have some very serious and very frankly private um, problems that they're dealing with um, and that are desperate, that are yeah. looking for help um, from their lawmaker. And, you know, certainly it's probably appropriate to exempt some amount of that information, but there's a debate going on about like, what should be in and what should be yeah. out. Yeah, what do you, f- I mean, what is your position on this as someone who worked in a legislative office? I mean, the current law in FOIA says already that you can exempt information that is a uh, an unwarranted invasion of privacy. Yeah. And now the legislature and what they're currently considering is adding another exemption that says all all communications with constituents are are going to be exempt unless they're a lobbyist. I, yeah, I think it's a tough problem. I'm I, I'm something I consider myself something of a free speech extremist. And so yeah, you know, I'm very sympathetic to, you know, more sunshine is better, but also people should be able to, yeah. you know, people should be able to speak about whatever they want. I think, um, you know, what makes this problem more difficult and maybe calls for a little bit more careful legislating and thinking through what are appropriate exemptions is, um, and I think this applies for what you do for a living too, the courts aren't going to get involved in this simply because there's always going to be that reticence to um, trample on legislative prerogatives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the separation of powers concern, I, I would argue, is taken much more seriously by the judiciary than it is by the other branches of totally. government. And so I don't think, you know, the existing exemption in FOIA, I don't think is quite enough mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, from a litigation standpoint, judges are going to run like hell from this. Um, and so I do think that you have to legislate a little bit more carefully about it. But by the same token, I can certainly envision scenarios where you're having communications with a constituent who's not a registered lobbyist that are, you know, we're not protecting people's private information. We're protecting attempts to influence a lawmaker about a piece of public policy. And I think those are two very different things. Yeah, I I think I, I understand the constituent, the need to protect the constituent communications because there are sensitive matters and there are state departments that are subject to FOIA now that operate in sensitive matters as well. Mm -hmm. But my point has been to people that I've talked to about this, that, you know, if you're a lawmaker and you're put, we've seen this repeatedly in the last few years, especially when it comes to environmental regulations, Mm -hmm. we will have a lawmaker introduce a bill and basically basically get up there and say, this is driven by my one conversation I had with this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in his backyard and he showed me this drainage issue that D- the Department of Environmental Quality was trying to regulate. Mm-hmm. The lawmaker is making policies for the whole state mm-hmm. based around one situation that occurred in the person's backyard. Sure. Should the public be able to know what was going on in that situation, what all the details of that situation truly were. Are there other details? Because right now the lawmakers get to selectively choose what information they provide. And they can still say, well, we shouldn't do anything about these constituent communications, but I'm going to base statewide environmental regulations around my constituent who had me out to their backyard. Yeah, and I think that, I think you raise a very fair point there. I think the flip side of that point is, I would be a little bit uncomfortable with that constituent's name being disclosed. Yes, I think that's a good point. Um, Because, you know, the... Whoever's on the other side of whatever the issue is, um, I don't think it's appropriate that that constituent, particularly in our current political environment, should be subjected to abuse by people that are on the other side of that issue. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's, um, I'm most of the way there with you, maybe yeah. not quite all the way there. The other thing that you brought up in terms of major issues that I wanted to touch on is the, um, 
you know, the so-called dark money, right? Mm-hmm. The um, the nonprofit money. And you and I have talked about this a little bit. I think it's a super interesting topic. Um, again, you're stipulating I'm a bit of a free speech extremist. <laughs> yeah. um, how you draw the line um, around sort of First Amendment concerns and the ability for people to engage in anonymous paid political speech. And on the other hand, um, you know, disclosing how our politics operates. I mean, how do you strike that balance, you think? Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I'll point to the, the Supreme Court and the Citizens United decision. I talk to large groups about this decision all the time, and people on both sides of the aisle, you know, think that this is the worst decision, and it's terrible, you know. But in the Citizens United decision from 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court was trying to balance two things. The right of people to spend money on politics and do that as an exercise of their free speech rights. Mm-hmm. And then also the uh, the fear that if you allow a corporation mm-hmm. to drive a Brinks truck up to someone's house, mm-hmm. who's a lawmaker, and dump the money in the front yard, that there will at least be an appearance of corruption. Sure. The neighbor might look out and be like, hey, what is that Brinks truck doing over there? Yeah, that doesn't look right. Yeah. Um, so they had to balance these two things. And what the con- you know this was a five-four decision. The conservatives on the court put down this ruling. It said corporations and labor unions can spend as much as they want on politics, mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be independent of the candidates themselves. And within this decision, Justice Kennedy wrote that this would be a system that has disclosure, where this is going to be disclosed. And the public can uh, make decisions, electoral decisions, and shareholders can make decisions based around all of this. So, I mean, I believe, I agree with that in some ways, that there should be a balance of people, you know, having, if people are going to have the ability to speak, um, and speech under these court rulings is spending money on politics, that the guard and the protection that we should have around all of that is the public's ability to know who is doing the speaking, where is the money coming from. I don't think that that limits your ability to speak. I think it provides the public with the ability to make decisions in response to the speech that they are ultimately going to be the subjects of. Sure. Um, yeah, I think the the alternative uh, or maybe slightly different view to that is that um, in a lot of instances, it can be important to protect the anonymity of individuals, groups that are speaking. Um, and that that's uh, that can have some unfortunate effects sometimes. I certainly uh, agree with that. But that in general, we should err on the side of allowing people to speak. And in a lot of instances, people need the most protection when they're expressing opinions that are unpopular. Um, and so that anonymity is a sort of key feature. Um, and it's something that, you know, has been going on literally since the founding of the country. I mean, the, um, the Federalist Papers were mostly written anonymously, right? Obviously, that's, there's a large difference in scale behind running, you know, a half a billion Internet ads um, yeah. and, you know, printing up leaflets in uh, Ben Franklin's office. But, um, you know, there's there's a difference in scale, but I'm not sure. I don't know what you think about the is there is it just a difference in scale or is there something qualitatively different between those two things? I I think there is something qualitatively different when you're talking about handing money over, basically spending money uh, to, you know, influence a public policy matter through an interaction that involves a public office holder and the ability for the public to trace these things. I mean, the basically, uh, people who believe in disclosure have kind of handed over this idea that the founding fathers would almost have certainly been on the side of 
undisclosed political spending. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I mean, how do, first off, how would we know that? Sure. But, <laughs> but, but secondly, I mean, this was a group of people that were basically railing against uh, taxation without representation, not having a voice in their government. Mm-hmm. Would, would, are we certain that they would have been on the side of uh, allowing very large and wealthy donors to be in charge of uh, the spending in so much of our political process? And then in addition to that, I mean, if you read the Constitution, and I've heard some people talk about this, and I think it's, it's spot on. There's this clause of the Constitution called the Emoluments Clause that's mm-hmm. been in the news a lot lately. It has. That is all about this idea that we don't want you know, our president and others within the administration to be corrupted by gifts by foreign governments. So they had, the founding fathers did have a belief that we need to protect our government against corruption. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of this disclosure is about today. So I think it's, it's almost, uh, it, it's, it's not a certainty to say that the Founding Fathers would have stood on one side of this issue. And at the end of the day, um, the, how much that actually matters, I guess, is an open question, too. Sure. I mean, some of that depends on, you know, your sort of, uh, I mean, your theory of the Constitution and yeah. how it should be interpreted. I'm, I'm not an originalist myself, although, again, I'll admit to being a bit of an extreme about free speech. I mean, the one issue I would quibble with you uh, about there is, um, while we can't know for a certainty um, that the founders would have supported, um, you know, wealthy individuals um, engaging in large-scale anonymous paid political speech, um, that was essentially the founders. I mean, these were all very, very wealthy men, uh, almost exclusively very wealthy men, landowners, who were engaged in anonymous paid political speech that most people in the American colonies at the time would not have been able to engage in. Yeah, and the difference may be the type of paid political speech that was going on. When we have now um, uh, TV airwaves that are essentially owned by the public that that are used to um, distribute anonymous TV ads. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I um, I do think, um, you know, you and I obviously have had some fun conversations around this. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I do think that there are some areas where there's probably some pretty broad agreement, and while, you know, there's not necessarily broad agreement on wholesale reforms to certain aspects of that, I mean, you did bring up one uh, very interesting thing that is, currently permissible with some of these nonprofits, which is taking money from foreign nationals. Um, I do think that's sort of low-hanging fruit. Um, You know, we can certainly have a robust argument about whether American citizens and American corporations can engage in unlimited anonymous paid political speech in our politics, but particularly given what's been in the news for the last few years since the 2016 elections, I think we can all agree that foreign nationals shouldn't be doing that in our politics. And, And how do you prevent that without disclosure? It's a fair question. Um, I think some of this, even if you don't approach, even if you don't want wholesale disclosure of who's donating to social welfare organizations, I do think part of the problem um, lies with the Internal Revenue Service here. Um, You know, the Internal Revenue Service, both because of some of the controversies around the targeting of conservative groups, whether you believe that the um, alleged targeting of conservative, whether you believe that or not, Um, but also, frankly, the IRS is understaffed, and the current administration has made pretty clear that they're not all that interested in enforcement actions around this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, So whether you get to the point of wholesale disclosure, I do think it's accurate that you know the IRS needs more people. Um, in the divisions that govern 
these uh, social welfare organizations. And there is a real conversation to be had about what is the role of the Internal Revenue Service, whether this is disclosed or not, in reviewing internally, where the hell is this money coming from? Is it coming from foreign nationals? Whether that's going to be disclosed or not, yeah. I think that you know, the IRS has been a little lax for a variety of reasons in their enforcement functions. Yeah, and at the state level, I mean, th this in some areas falls upon the attorney general Sure. At the state level, and we just had this huge debate in lame duck about the attorney general's ability, even within her office or his office, to even look at this information. I mean, there were people right. pushing a bill that would have barred them from being able to obtain some of this information from these nonprofits. So, I mean, this is an issue that's very real and very and one that's very much being debated right now. Yeah, no, and, and, and it's super interesting stuff. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, so the Michigan Campaign Finance Network for a lot of years prior to you coming on um, as the uh, the new head of that organization was run by Rich Robinson. Yeah. For, a, for a long time was yes. essentially synonymous with Rich. Yeah. And um, I wonder if, you know, do you have differences in ter terms of sort of approach or style in how you're trying to run the organization from how Rich did? Yeah, I mean, I talk to Rich still on a regular basis. I'm sure. He's such an awesome, uh, he, he's he's really someone that I think served this state extremely well. Sure. This, this organization, a lot of the information that we have about money and politics in Michigan and, and you know, uh, efforts to influence the legislature, um, it was gathered by Rich. Basically, mm -hmm. one guy working out of an office putting yep. this together. Um not getting a lot of praise for the work that he's doing, but doing it. And now we have this record that wouldn't have existed if it weren't for his work. Um, I think, I mean, we are similar in some areas uh, in terms of tracking the money. I think we both agree that we need a record of what's going on because that, that's one of the roles that MCFN has been forced to play. I am much, I am more aggressive than he was in terms of wanting to do investigative, you know, reports on mm -hmm. specific uh efforts to influence public policy because I think um, you know, I have a journalism background, he had a bit of a different background, but I, I believe that we can talk about the numbers all day. Mm -hmm. And some people don't care about numbers at all. Some of a lot of people fall asleep during the numbers. But I think it's important to show people, you know, uh, specific instances, policies that they may care about, where this type of uh, excessive financial <laughs> uh, influence is actually affecting policies that affect people's lives. Sure. I mean, that's something that I don't know if he disagrees with me on this, but this is something that I have done more of since I've been the director. So. Sure. Well, and that's been that's been one of the things that I've enjoyed about uh, reading the work that you've been doing um, since you came on. Not that I didn't enjoy reading Rich's work before, but I'm uh, another thing that I'm sort of a zealot about is the need for investigative reporting as investigative reporting, whether it's from, you know, yeah. a good government advocacy perspective or not an advocacy perspective at all. Um, investigative reporting is kind of dying in this country. And I think the that's exactly the opposite of what we need right now. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I don't, and the sad thing is, I don't think investigative reporting is dying. I think it's happening at the national level. There's a lot of investigative reporting happening uh, toward the federal government mm -hmm. at the national level. Where it is dying is at the state level and local level. That's and right. that's where we need it most. Yeah, I, mean, I saw a uh, news article uh, a couple of weeks ago that, you know, Facebook is having trouble finding local news content. Well, I mean, it's largely because social media platforms have run a lot of those local outlets out of business. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and there, there there's just um, you know at the national level there are many reporters mm-hmm. chasing all of these stories. I mean, just look at what has happened with yeah. all of these issues regarding the the Trump administration. Um, at the state level, you don't see that even the type of investigative reporting that we saw ten years ago. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are fewer journalists covering the state government. In Michigan, I I say this all the time, I think in Michigan it's a specific problem because Mm -hmm. in Michigan we have this situation where the biggest city is not the state capital. Mm -hmm. So you have really the two largest newspapers are based in a city, and the state capital where the state government is seated is based in a city that's, you know, over an hour away. Right. And I think that leads to even a smaller amount of investigative reporting aimed at the state government here. I'm from Indiana originally. The largest newspaper in the state is the Indianapolis Star. Mm -hmm. It covers the state government very aggressively because it's right next to the state capitol. Sure. So, I mean, that's another issue in Michigan. Uh, I mean, we we desperately need more investigative reporting at the state and the local level. Yeah. Um, to shine light on what's happening in government, to show people what is it, what is going on with their representatives, um, whether it be good or bad. Yeah, and I think I think the the point about local government is particularly well taken. Um, there are still some stalwarts out there that are hanging on, like yourself and a few others that are. Uh, doing investigative reporting about the state government at the local level, uh, it's almost gone. Um, And you occasionally see these stories bubbling up in um, sort of broader news media in the state about some really wacky things going on at the local level. And I don't think that most people have much idea about what their local government is doing good bad or indifferent i mean they get their tax bills um but they're not they're not seeing very much about what those local elected officials are doing and i think it shows in how local government is working right now no i i agree i mean it it is it with the level of resources that some of the local newspapers have right now it's very difficult to have a reporter go to every city council or county commission meeting yeah. uh you know month in and month out being there every every day but that that's really how you get the big stories yeah. is going to these meetings that may seem to be very boring. Um, Some of them but, are. But yeah. picking up on things and yeah. building a relationship. So when someone does want to, you know, blow the whistle on something, they know you and they see you. And there are people that do a good job of this. There are state journalists, statewide journalists in Michigan doing uh, excellent work and digging into things. Yeah. My point is we need a lot more. Absolutely. I mean, we need a lot more. Absolutely. So what's your vision for the future of the organization? You know, you mentioned the investigative reporting piece as maybe a little bit of a, an approach difference. What do you want to see, um, you know, two years, five years from now for the Michigan Campaign Finance Network? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, number one is that we have to keep doing, I mean, we have to keep doing work that is meaningful to people. Mm-hmm. And we have to keep doing work that, that, that affects people in a way where they want to read it. And even though it might have some numbers in it, yeah. that people want to read every every bit of it. And I think for us, you know, one of the big hurdles is, and this is a hurdle for every type of um, non-traditional uh, entity that provides some type of reporting, is trying to get the content out to people. Yeah. You know, if we are listing, you know, this is very basic, every lawmaker and how much free food they got from lobbyists, how do we get that out to people so mm-hmm. they can see, like, hey, I live over in West Michigan and my lawmaker is taking an excessive amount of free food. How do we get that to people? So they know like, hey, your lawmaker is actually number one on this list. I mean, there's a hurdle or your lawmaker got this free trip and then did something to benefit the person that gave them the free trip. Sure. How how do you get this information out? Because it's only meaningful 
if people connect with it. And I think those are the, that's the big hurdle that we we and others have to figure out how do we how we get around. It's different than someone bringing a newspaper to your house and dropping it off every day. Yeah. Absolutely. So without asking you about your specific donors, how do you fundraise for an organization like yeah. this? Like, uh, I know how to do political fundraising. I've done some nonprofit fundraising in the past. How do you raise money for something like this? Investigative journalism isn't cheap. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, you know, it's a question I'm still trying to figure out how to answer <laughs> to, <but laughs> to be honest. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, uh, when I became the director, one of the things that I wanted to do was list the people who'd give money to us because that had been an issue that some people who don't, don't like what we do have raised before i've heard that issue yeah. raised before, as a matter of fact. yeah so so now we we list everyone that gives us over 200 dollars on our website about oh, i didn't know that yeah okay. everyone on the about us page of our website if you give us over 200 dollars, if you adrian right now gave me 200 dollars, you would your name would be on this hall of honor of supporting our work hmm. uh, the question of how how do we raise the money right now about half of our money comes from a couple of uh foundations based in michigan family okay. foundations half of our money is money that we go out and raise from people. Um, how do we do it? Uh, we have a, a group of supporters that, that support us year in and year out, mm -hmm. and then we're constantly trying to grow that base. I pretty much take any uh, invitation to speak anywhere, mm -hmm. I go do it, because there's a chance to connect with people mm -hmm. that will connect with our mission uh, and want to support us. So, I mean, that's how, how we try to fundraise. We do a lot of online fundraising. We do mail fundraising, all of these things that, uh, you know, uh, probably political candidates do as well. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, so what do you like to see from candidates um, for public office in terms of disclosure beyond what's currently required by Michigan law? Um, whether these are things that should be required by the law or they're just sort of things that are best practice. What do you think, from an ideal perspective, candidates should be disclosing? Well, I mean, I think the candidates themselves have to disclose what they're you know, the money that they're raising, right? I mean, the, the type of money in politics that we know the most about is the money that the candidates control, mm -hmm. at least uh, outwardly control. Um, I, think it when, I think when it comes to this question that you're asking, I think where we're really seeing uh, change is when it comes to corporations mm -hmm. who are now voluntarily disclosing political spending that they're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, I mean, I might be taking your question and pivoting somewhere else, but I mean, I think one thing that I would love to see is more companies mm -hmm. who say, I want to do things in the goodwill, uh, for the goodwill, uh, voluntarily releasing all their corporate political spending. We've seen this happening. I mean, I think that's something that, you know, personally, I would love to see more of because it does provide some type of uh, uh, of glance at, at what's happening in an area we often don't know about. I mean, when it comes to the candidates themselves, I think, you know, the main area is public office holders who have set up a nonprofit or administrative Mm -hmm. fun to basically pay for their office holder expenses mm -hmm. and and many of them the wide majority of them uh, don't even publicly acknowledge that they have such a fund. You know, I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, voluntarily releasing the names of such a fund so the public can at least know you're doing this and voluntarily releasing where the money is coming from is a way to, to build public trust, I guess. I don't know. Does that answer the, the question? Yeah, no, I think that's great. I, you know, along those lines, I was actually very impressed to see earlier this year, um, and full disclosure, he's a friend of mine, uh, the mayor of Lansing, um, yeah. who does have one of these 527 administrative accounts. Uh, 
um, to defray officeholder expenses, which I think sometimes people look askance at, but um, I, I'm perfectly fine with, frankly, um, because holding office, especially an office like that, can be quite expensive. And, you know, the offices don't, frankly, pay as much as someone could be making in the private sector. Um, he just came out and, and showed everybody everything and was very upfront with his donors that I'm going to disclose this information. Um, so I, I thought that that was a, a move that was very much in line with the sort of thing that you're talking about. I have this fund. Here's what I use it for. I mean, and he showed all his expenses for it too. Like I, you know, we spent 850 at Kinko's to yeah. make copies of whatever. Okay, it's hard to argue with that. Yeah, and I think when he was in the legislature, I'm trying to remember, this was in 2016, we did a big story with MLive about all these secret accounts lawmakers have, and Mayor Shore mm -hmm. was in the legislature at the time, and I'm pretty sure he was one of two people that were open about, I have this fund, and here's what's going on with it. It wasn't raising much money at that time. Sure. But, I mean, I think he has been someone that has at least acknowledged what he's doing, and many people won't even acknowledge sure. uh, uh, what's going on, or were outwardly trying to mislead. Yeah, sure. It. So shameless plug yeah. for my friend Andy Shore. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I think that's right, and um, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think there's, um, you know, the I, I think one thing, and I'm interested to get your take on this, that makes some of what your organization does so difficult in terms of following the money is that, unlike at the federal level with these uh, social welfare organizations. Um, state-level elected officials in Michigan are allowed to coordinate with yeah. these nonprofits. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a felony at the federal level. Yeah, at the federal level, they would not be able to coordinate with these groups that are advocating for the election. And even if you're a member of Congress, you cannot solicit money to an organization like this to pay your officeholder expenses. Right. If you're a member of Congress, you cannot do this. Mm -hmm. um, here at the state, uh, so many lawmakers, you know, I'm guessing it's very hard to tell. Mm -hmm. But I would guess a, a, at minimum a third of them, likely more than half of them, are raising money for one of these accounts. And the wide majority of those people are not listing um, anywhere the account's name or who's giving to the account, um, which makes it... Which makes it uh, <laughs> very difficult to, to really do investigative work about what's going on because if you're taking a donation that you don't want anyone to know about, you just direct it to an account that no one will ever see. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, when I when you talk about, uh, you know, advocacy, uh, this is important to tell the story of how government is working. And if I feel like I'm failing if I don't acknowledge that I can't tell really this full story of how the government is working because I just don't know. Right. And in a, in a lot of instances, there's no way for you to know yeah. unless someone makes a mistake. <laughs> makes a mistake or someone has the information, says, I'm going to blow the whistle on this. I mean, uh, Governor Snyder was raising millions of dollars mm -hmm. from mystery donors yeah. for much of his time in office. Mm -hmm. Who were those people? What public policies did they have an interest in? Why were they giving to him? We will probably never know. Yeah, that's right. We will never know. And he was the top office holder in the state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So broadly speaking, um, you know, obviously your organization is is devoted to transparency. And what do you see as the appropriate role for interest groups, both in terms of financial participation in politics, but also in terms of lobbying and influence? I'm particularly interested because, um, you know, uh, my current role as CEO of this firm, but also, you know, I spent um, a little over five years as a lobbyist at one of the big firms downtown. Um, so I'm very interested just on a personal level. What's your take on 
how that should work. What's the appropriate role for these groups, um, whether they're groups that spend a lot of money in donations or in you know issue advocacy or folks that spend a lot of money on lobbying and influence? Um, I mean, what, what's your view of the appropriate role for those organizations? You know, I think that's a really difficult question to answer. You I know, figured we'd end that, with a hard yeah, one. That is really hard. Um, you know, we are a transparency-based organization, so I try not to, I probably don't want to get into, you know, what they should or should not be doing. I mean, sure. I think, like, on this issue, you know, I, I, I would like to see as much information uh, as we can know about some of the things going on in lobbying. And, that, you know, that's why it's such a hard answer for, uh, question for me to answer, because we know so little. Sure. Like we know so little about lobbying. I mean, I, I was just looking at some other states' lobbying disclosure laws, and in Indiana, I mean, uh, you have to disclose bills that you're trying to influence. If you take someone to a concert, you have to disclose it. I mean, we have these thresholds in our law where you can buy, you can spend like sixty dollars on a lawmaker each month and never have to report that you met with that lawmaker. Yeah. And then we have this other uh, really strange system where you know the multi-client lobbyists who represent the interest groups um, are doing the purchasing of meals for all of these people and don't have to say which client they're representing while they're you know purchasing the perk for the lawmaker. Although so, I will say with the, the meals things is a little bit more difficult from personal experience because if I care enough to get you out for lunch or dinner yeah. or whatever, I probably have a bunch of things I want to talk to you about. Yeah, but at the end of the day, I mean, who's someone is paying for the meal? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the firm. The firm's paying for the meal, but where are they getting the money from? Sure, yeah, from absolutely. some client. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there is some client out there, and if you're talking to that lawmaker about five different bills, I don't see why that couldn't be disclosed. Sure, we I talked think, about all these different issues. Right, I think one of the interesting things um, that astonishes my friends in Washington D.C. Um, what I tell them that Michigan has a gift limit. You're allowed to give lawmakers gifts? That always astonishes. <laughs> um, I have a lot of friends that are lobbyists in Washington, D.C., yeah. and their eyes get real big when they, when you can give them gifts? Yeah, yeah, and then you can also give gifts to their relatives. Well, and that is that was one of the things that I always found really interesting is that I don't have to disclose. I, I'm not a lobbyist anymore, yeah. but when I was, I don't have to disclose if I gave a gift to your spouse or... To your children, I only have to disclose if I gave the gift to you. Does that happen? Of course it does. Yeah. Um, I never engaged in that personally. And frankly, the firm that I worked at was very, very scrupulous about that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, partly because they, they are the biggest firm in the state yeah. and kind of had a target on their back. So they were very by the book in terms of what yeah. they would do um, and didn't want even the perception of impropriety. But I've seen it done. Yeah, so, I mean, this happens, and I, I think the other thing about the lobbying laws is, and this is a true travesty, no matter what your viewpoint is on some of these other things, the lobbying firms often don't even know what they're supposed to be reporting. The laws are written in a way where one firm is, is interpreting the laws one way when it comes to what is a lobbyable expense, and other firms are interpreting another way. Some firms just use a flat percentage. Here's the overall amount of money that we brought in. Let's just say that this is the percentage of what we're spending. And I think this is the this should worry some people because these these disclosures are there for a reason and, and they're they're very difficult for the firms to, to understand, in my opinion, from the people that I've talked to. Well I think that extends beyond lobbying law. I mean, um, as the CEO of a political consulting firm, which uh, we don't lobby, uh, but um, 
someone who's in this sort of space, like I said, I think it extends beyond lobbying in terms of just regulatory certainty. Mm -hmm. um, and with apologies to my attorney friends, and I have a lot of them, yeah. um, everyone I know who runs a political consulting firm, whether they're lobbyists or they do grassroots work like we do, whatever they do, um, their number two expense after labor is lawyers. Mm -hmm. um, and I would certainly enjoy the regulatory certainty if for no other reason than I might spend less on lawyers. Making it uh, yeah, simpler to understand, basically. Simpler to understand. And to your point, um, I think it's absolutely true that, you know, different firms in the political in consulting space, whether they're lobbyists or not, um, are sort of forced to interpret the law for themselves because the way that a lot of the regulations around politics and mm -hmm. influence are written, um, they're extremely vague. And I think that was largely by design when those laws were written and amended. And so you essentially have to spend money to be your own compliance officer yeah. because the law is so vague. Yeah, and I think the laws were written that way so no one could be caught. <laughs> you know, if it's vague enough, in some ways, you can get away with, with things and be like, well, it's, it's vague enough that I can point to the law. But then it does lead to worry. Like, what if someone gets in office and starts interpreting this in a very strict way? Right. And, and, and you know, we, we could see that happen. I mean, there's constantly, uh, even within some Secretary of State administrations, when it comes to campaign finance, you will see them interpret the law one way at the beginning, and then at the end, they're interpreting it a different way. Sure. And that leads to a lot of uncertainty, and it leads often to, to fines for people that have to pay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, that's why you know we as a firm spend so much on attorneys on the front end yeah. is not to get into a situation like that. And if there is any question or, you know, a change in administration at one of these regulatory departments, um, you know, could, could change how the law is interpreted or enforced, we don't want to be in a position where we're retroactively wondering, well, well, shit, I mean, we thought that was okay, but maybe it wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and so it, um, you know, just from the perspective of a small business owner who happens to be in politics, I think this goes for small business owners in any industry, um, regulatory certainty is a good thing. I think I think it's I think there's a way you know in my opinion I think there's a way definitely to make the laws simpler where people you know apologies to our attorney friends out there who are you know doing pretty well <laughs> absolutely <laughs> they there, are. There, there is a way to make the laws less complex so that you know and even some of those attorneys will say that they want the laws written in a way where a regular person can participate in this process without the fear of being fined a large sum for running afoul of the law because they don't have an attorney sure and i think there is a way to do that well and i think that's another really good point um for us to end on is that look i i run a pretty successful political consulting company i worked for another one in the past um you know if you if you are affiliated with a company like that or you are involved in some sort of moneyed interest group, at the end of the day, you're probably going to be able to come up with the lawyers to keep yourself out of any really big trouble unless you've been doing something really, really bad. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true for the average citizen, and I think it actually discourages people from getting involved in politics and you know maybe starting their own small nonprofit to influence an issue in their community you know in Bumblescum Township um, is that th there's no way that your average citizen can make um, can figure this all out on their own there's just not yeah and I, I would I mean I think those are the, that's a great point to end on is that the, these laws do have 
whatever these regulations are, whichever way they go, they do have an impact on people's willingness to participate in the democratic process. Yeah, absolutely. The ability to know how, how your government is working, <laughs> the ability to feel like your $25 donation to a candidate is actually going to make a difference when there's some person writing a million-dollar contribution to the mm-hmm. opponent of that candidate. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these things, the complexity of the current system, all of these things, I think, affect people's uh, like thought process when it comes to politics. And it's something we should all, no matter who you are, should be, should be thoughtful of. Yeah, absolutely. I think whether whether intentional or not, um, you know, in the way that the laws are crafted, the message that it sends to everyday folks, um, the way that our laws work right now is you're not wanted here. And that's um, that's exactly the wrong message. I think everyone can agree. We want more people to participate and to participate in a more robust way that's founded in facts um, yeah. and, and real information. And the way that the the current regulatory structure for politics is structured, um, whether intentional or not, sends the message to your average citizen who doesn't do politics for a living. You don't belong here. Yeah, I think uh, that's such a great point, and I think that uh, you know if you don't if you don't understand this or understand what we're talking about, go to a committee hearing sometime. Yeah. Find a bill that you're passionate about, yeah. that you care about. Just go sit there and see what happens. See what the process is like at a committee hearing. Mm-hmm. See who gets to testify first. See who is welcomed in what way to that committee hearing. See how the regular citizens that show up are, are treated at those committee hearings. It's a, it's a fascinating process to watch. And I think it, it only is solved by, um, you know, people having the power, taking an interest in these things, more reporters out there digging into these things, and the public really getting involved in this. I mean, the, the one thing I hear about most uh, from lawmakers is, you know, the public doesn't care about this. So what? If we disclosed all of this, who's going to care about this? Right. There is a huge uh, need for the public to actually take an increased interest in what their government is doing and not just President Trump. A lot of people care about President Trump, but what's happening in Lansing, what's happening in your city government can have just as large of an impact on you. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And uh, I want to end us right there on that great piece of advice, whether it's, uh, you know, to learn more about campaign finance or for any other reason, um, please show up at a government meeting for your township, for your state legislature, for your city council. If you're in DC, um, show up for a session of Congress. But um, even that little step, you taking an interest, um, this all comes down to each of us, you know, there are more than 300 million of us in this country. Um, Each of us is a sort of grain of sand um, that can weigh on that. And merely your presence, um, the more of you that do it, um, the more it's gonna get noticed. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Craig. This has been a riot. It's been great. Thank you so much.